go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Luke 8. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we're starting verse 26. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll read the uh, read the passage. Um, so yeah, Luke 8, 26 is where we're going to be. Jesus, I come to you this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you that you are glorious, that you are faithful. We are so faithless. We are so prone to choose anything except you. But you're gracious. gracious. You reach into our hearts. You redeem us. You save us. Jesus, I confess my weakness. Pray that you would speak through me. Pray, Lord, that you would use this time to bring yourself glory. Let us see your glory. We, we cannot help but be changed when we see your glory. So I pray right now, Lord, that you be with us. And I pray that um, we would leave edified and encouraged. In your name, amen. All right. Well, I'm going to read the whole text because it flows together. Uh, so picking up Luke 8, verse 26. Then they, that being Jesus and his disciples sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, and he said, legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, this the, when you read the Bible, sometimes you come across stories that just seem weird and whacked out. And this is one of them for me. So I usually have a couple different options when this happens. Usually I read it and either say, man, that was weird. 
and then I go on and read something else that feels better. Or I really dig in and, you know, seek God for his wisdom and hope that he'll speak to my heart. And since he sovereignly ordained for me to preach on this passage, I didn't have option A this time, so I had to do option B. Um, and if you're wondering, we uh, last week Sean ended Luke chapter 7. And um, so we were going to pick up in Luke chapter 8 today because, again, we've been, if you're new, we've been going through the book of the Bible, this book of the Bible, Luke. We start in Luke 1. So we're up to chapter 8 now. And uh, a lot of circumstances happened. I was slated to actually preach next Sunday because, of course, it's a holiday weekend. So I always get the holiday weekends. Um, but I'm not bitter. I'm over, it's, I've worked through it. I'm over it. Um, so Sean, but a lot of circumstances happened and we needed to flip-flop. And so now he gets to preach to 30 people next weekend and see what it's like to preach on a holiday weekend. Um, Again, I'm not bitter. I've totally worked through it. We're all good. Um, But anyway, we're trusting in God's sovereignty that that preaching it flip-flopped, it'll all work out. So next week you'll get the first part of Luke. This week we get 26 through 39. So the reason I think we come across some of these stories that seem weird to us is we are very finite. We're very limited in our ability to understand things, our hearts are tainted by sin, we're born under the curse of sin, and God is this infinite, majestic being who is the source of all wisdom, he's the source of all knowledge, he's the source of all purity and glory, and we could spend our whole lives really digging in and trying to understand everything in his word, and we would still just get such a small fraction of who he is. So, we should actually expect when we're reading his word that there are going to be some things that come into our hearts and our souls and they either seem counterintuitive or they don't make sense and we're going to have to depend on him and his supernatural divine insight to be able to understand the passage. So hopefully by his grace we will get there today. Uh, So before we get too deep into the passage, I want to just give an overview. Um, The title of today's sermon is They Don't Do It Like the King Do which is from one from that's a line from one of my favorite songs by Bizzle, if you know who they are. And uh, the whole song talks about how um, just how different we are from God and how He does things. So, the uh, in the passage we're going to go kind of through three different sections. The first is I want to talk about where it fits in Luke. So how this story is a part of of the of chapter eight in the book of Luke. And then I want to go through the story itself, kind of verse by verse and glean some insights from it, and then we're going to close with kind of three lessons from the story. So three three things that God kept really impressing upon my heart um, that, that, that he wanted me to see and hopefully us to see from this passage. So, um, so let's start with where the story is placed in Luke. So uh, it's this. if you go up to verse 22, um, this is kind of one, this story is kind of one of four supernatural things that Jesus does right in a row. So this is the second one. But in verse 22, you get the story where Jesus calms the storm. So they're coming across the lake, Jesus with his disciples. And these are fishermen, so they've been in the lake a long time. They've been on the lake a lot of times. They've certainly seen some storms. But this one seems particularly bad because they're worried they're going to die, and they wake Jesus up, and they're kind of panicking like a bunch of little schoolgirls. And so... Um, they, or a grown man in front of a snake, or, you know, they're, they're upset. So um, Jesus gets up, and he just speaks some words, and he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the rain, 
and it's calm. It's like perfect stillness. And, then, and I grew up in a small town, and, and we had a lake in my town. And my favorite time to see the lake was in the morning. Because usually in the morning, early, there were no boats on it. There, were, you know, there was nothing happening on the lake. It was really still. It looked like glass, you know, no ripples. So they go from this kind of crazy, raging storm to this instant calm. And so that's amazing to them in their time where, you know, they had less understanding of the world than we do now. But even now, with all of our development, all of our progress as a society, we have no ability to control the weather. And we can maybe like 50-50 predict what's going to happen with the weather, but much less control it and stop something or start something. That is real supernatural power. And if you go on, obviously in our story, we see this guy who's tormented. Jesus heals him. And then the two stories that follow... You get a lady who's been sick and bleeding for 12 years without any kind of cure. And then you get Jesus instantly healing her. And then after that, you get Jesus raising somebody from the dead. So you get these kind of four power-packed stories of Jesus doing the supernatural stuff. And again, with all of our medical technology and advancement, we still have no power to bring somebody back from the dead after they've been dead for a long period of time. So these are things that should amaze us now um, like the people then were amazed at the things that Jesus was doing. And the reason this is important for us to understand what's happening and what Jesus is doing is there are a lot of people who want to affirm who Jesus is as a man, as a teacher, that he had great messages for us, that, that we should adhere to the things that he said, but they don't want to hold up that he's God. Either it's a step too far for them to believe Maybe they're entrenched in naturalism and, and they can't give any credence to anything supernatural or maybe just the idea of God humbling himself and becoming a human. Um, that's, a, that's a really kind of a foreign concept. If you have any kind of background in Islam, that, that God would ever, you know, stoop that low. Um, so there may be a variety of reasons why people don't want to affirm Jesus's divine sonship. But, but this passage alone, these four stories together, we cannot deny that he has supernatural power, that he was the son of God, that he is the son of God, and that he's exercising power over creation like you would expect a creator to do. I mean, if he's the one that created the world, he should have the ability to tweak it, make changes to it, or start weather, stop weather. So we see him acting like we would expect a creator to act. So that's the first point in this is we've got to remember who Jesus is and kind of where this story fits in with the stories around it. So let's go through the passage itself and talk about uh, some of the insights from the passage. So verse 26, it says, They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now the area where they land, this is kind of a rough, rocky area on the eastern shore of the lake that's filled with a bunch of cliffs. And it was basically a, a graveyard. So in that day and time, a lot of times when somebody died, you would dig a hole, dig like a mini cave into a rock, and then you would place their body in there and, and seal it. So we see this when Jesus died. He was placed in the tomb, and they rolled this big rock in front of it to seal it. So this area where this guy is living is, is you know, symbolic of death. It's kind of like if he was living in a modern-day graveyard. So some of the tombs were you know, most likely filled with people who had died. There were probably some that were empty, that were earmarked for people in the future when they died. 
But we're meant to get this picture of death, that this guy is living among death. He's living among tombs or where dead people are. And then we see this kind of carry out in verse 7, 27, where we see how unhappy he is. So when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So we're meant to see this guy's really unhappy. He's not, he's not sane. He, he's, he's not thinking clearly. Um, his mind is not sound. And he's basically living, you know, naked in this area of death. And it, it highlights, and we see later, um, that at one point he was living in town. He was living with clothes on. Uh, he, he was, you know, living in a house. But kind of all of these things have been stripped of him as he is, he's, you know, been more and more tormented by the enemy. Um, in Mark 5, which is a parallel passage to this one where we get Mark's version of the story, we see that this guy is always crying out and he's cutting himself. It says he's cutting himself all day long. So again, he's living in this kind of rough, rocky area where there are probably a lot of sharp edges, a lot of sharp rocks, and he's literally, his soul is tormented, but he's literally mutilating his body. He's, he's I mean, this guy is, is the picture of, we're meant to see, you know, just kind of depravity, destruction, and hopelessness. Um, and, and we're also meant to see here the demons are aggressive. So it says, as soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat, so this guy sees them coming, and as soon as they get there, he's, he's there and he's ready to meet them. And we see later the pig herders are kind of watching this thing, whole thing go down. So this guy, we don't know what his intentions are, if he's planning to come down and, and torment, you know, Jesus and his disciples or try to beat them up or subdue them, but he's rushing down, and he gets down there, and as they get close, the demons are, are like, ruh-roh, we made a mistake here. They get in front of Jesus, and they throw themselves down, because they realize this is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and we were coming down, you know, to, to do some bad stuff, but now bad things are going to happen to us. So in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So the demons immediately recognize who Jesus is, and they call him by his proper name. They call him son of the most high God. This is about as good a greeting as you'll ever see Jesus get in the New Testament. They acknowledge his position. It took the disciples years to figure out who Jesus is. These guys know, and they know that they are in submission to him, that they have no power over him. They immediately recognize him, and they acknowledge their powerlessness and their helplessness before him. So they know that they've been completely conquered, and they know that their time, their indestruction is coming. It's just a matter of when. And so they're, they're thinking, you know, maybe this is it. Even before the appointed time, Jesus is going to cast them out into the abyss. And so as I was reading this and getting prepared, this gave me a lot of comfort because sometimes it can be hard to see how God is working in, li- in our lives or in the lives of other people or just even the broader world in general when you read or hear stories about, you know, the terrible things that are happening in places like Syria. And, and it can be... Um, it can be easy sometimes to question where God is in all of those things. But this passage was a good reminder to me that Satan and his enemies 
are fully defeated and have been fully conquered by God. They're under his thumb. And we see this with the demons where, you know, just in how they address him, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. And we're going to see the word beg in this uh, passage three or four times. And, and all but once, it's the demons begging Jesus. And, and you don't go to begging unless you are completely powerless and out of all other options. And that's basically what they're doing. So we get a little bit better picture in verse 29 of who this guy is. It says, uh, For he, meaning Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So the townspeople had tried to control this guy for a while. Um, you know, they, they, as he had kind of grown up and been there, they had tried to figure out a way to live with this guy. But at some point, they had just had enough, and they're done. They're over it. And so they just decide he's got to be locked up. That's the only solution with this guy. So they bind him um, with bonds and chains and shackles. But he was so um, powerful and resourceful that he, he figured out a way to get out of these things and then eventually just, you know, isolates himself and lives alone here kind of among the dead. So this guy is, you know, completely captive in the hands of the enemy here, but Jesus is about to bring the healing that he needs. So in verse 30, we see Jesus, and it says this, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered the man. So Jesus is trying to engage this man by asking him his name. And if you read the story all the way up until here, all the, the references to the man and the pronouns are singular, and they switch and become plural to we and they. And so Jesus is trying to, to you know, let this guy tell him what his story is, but the demons take over and they answer. And they say the term legion, which at that time meant, 6,000 Roman soldiers. So we're not necessarily to believe that 6,000 demons are in this guy, but more than one is in there and a lot are in there, and he's really tormented and in really bad shape. And we see this in other parts of the Gospels. So uh, we see others in the New Testament who are tormented by more than one demon. So if you look at Luke 11:26, Luke 8:2, Matthew 12:45, and Mark 6:9, you'll see these instances where people come. And they, they've got more than one demon that's, that's afflicting and tormenting them. And so Jesus is about to, is, is, you know, kind of building so that we get the picture, and he's about to deliver the guy. So in verse 31, it says, and they begged. So again, remember in, uh, earlier we saw them in verse 28, it says, uh, he said, I beg you, do not torment me. Now we get the demons talking uh, plurally, it says, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, that word abyss, I don't know about for you, doesn't do a lot in my brain. I don't get uh, much of a picture. It's pretty abstract. But William Hendrickson, in his commentary, I thought, uh, really did a good job of capturing what we're supposed to see here. So, this is what he says. He says, the demoniac world realizes that on the day of final judgment, its relative freedom to roam about the earth and in the sky must cease forever. And that its final and most terrible punishment is destined to begin at that time. 
They know that right now they are face to face with the one to whom final judgment has been committed. They are afraid that even now, before the appointed time, Jesus might hurl them into the abyss or the dungeon, that is, into hell, the place where Satan is kept. So this is, these guys are scared because this might be the beginning of their eternal torment and destruction right now. They know their end. They're not trying to circumvent Jesus. They're not trying to overpower him. They, they know he has conquered them. They have no hope. Their eternity is to be with Satan forever in torment. And we're meant to get this picture of the, the worst possible place imaginable. Not on earth, imaginable in the universe. So that's what the abyss is. And that's why we see them begging that, that they're not put in this place now. And again, you don't go to begging unless you have no other options and you have no other hope or no other resources to try to get out of the situation that you're in. Now, in verse 32 and 33, we're going to again kind of see Jesus highlighting his sovereignty over things. So verse 32, it says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged, so this is the third time they begged, they begged him to let them enter, in, to enter these. So he gave them permission, and then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So the pigs here, again, highlight this Gentile. So Jesus is a Gentile region, because in general, Jews didn't want anything to do with pork. They were not aching for bacon. They, they, were, just, they were good to not be with pigs. So the fact that he sailed across to the other side of the lake, and they're there, and there are these pigs there, these, these pig farmers there, these pig herders. This is a Gentile region. So Jesus is taking the gospel beyond the Jewish people, uh, beyond God's chosen people, into you know, other people. And this is kind of, a, again, a highlight of God's heart for all people, that he wants the gospel to go everywhere in the world, uh, not just to you know, one section or one group of people. And it also highlights God's sovereignty over everything because the demons are begging for permission. And if Jesus does not give them that permission, they can't do what they want to do. They cannot go into these pigs. So again, these guys are under the thumb of God. And this should bring us a lot of hope and a lot of peace that nothing can happen to you that is outside of God's control or God's power. Nothing can happen to you, your life, your kids, your family, your job. Nothing can happen. No no one can touch you that is outside of God's control. Nothing's going to happen in terms of, you know, death before God's pre or, you know, preordained date. And so we don't have to live in fear about things that may happen to us. Bad things will happen to us. We will have hard times. We will experience death. But all of this is God working his sovereign plan for his glory and for our good. So in 34, 34 through 37, the story kind of shifts off Jesus and the man and we get more of a focus on the townspeople. So we're going to get a little highlight into who these people are and kind of how they relate to this man. So in verse 34, it says, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Now these guys are going to tell everybody what happened for a couple reasons. One, they've just seen something really crazy and amazing 
and they're scared. And usually when that happens, the first thing you do is you run and you tell somebody. So yesterday at our house, we have a creek that runs through the back. Uh, we had a snake sighting. And so um, we, were, we were gone. Uh, Robin and I had gone on a date. We left the kids at the babysitter. And um, as soon as I get home, the first I walk in the door, and the babies, they were playing outside when we left. And the babysitter said, um, the, I, you know, I didn't, hadn't even said hi to her. She said, we didn't play outside very long because we saw a snake and we ran in. We were all scared. I was like, oh, okay. And then this morning at 6.35 when the girls came in and woke me up, and uh, I was not feeling very spiritual in that moment. But the first thing they did was, Daddy, we saw a snake in the creek, and we're not going back out there until you kill it. And so they were both kind of talking, and I gleaned that the snake was somewhere between six inches and six feet, um, and that it was not black. It had some yellow. Evie said it looked like a cobra. I don't think it was a cobra. But basically, they told me twice, until I go out there and either give them the sign that the snake is gone or I kill it, they're not going back into the backyard. And so they've got this fear, and the first thing they do is they want, they want to you know, talk about it. They want, us, they want me to know the snake's out there and something's got to be done. So these guys rush into town because they're scared, and they want to tell everybody what's happened. And they also want to cover themselves because in Mark's gospel, in, in chapter 5, it says there were about 2,000 pigs that just died. And in that day and time, you didn't have stock portfolios or bank accounts I mean, the wealth that you had were the literal possessions that you owned. So to lose 2,000 pigs, these guys don't want to get in trouble or, you know, look incompetent. They want people to know this is not their fault, and they want, you know, to, to be the ones to set the story straight. So these guys are, are not so concerned about necessarily the man and them being healed as they are covering their own selves. So, and we see a little bit more of that in verse 35 through 37. So this is what it says, and pick it up in verse 35. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man with whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they saw what had happened, and those who had seen what had happened, um, sorry, let me start over. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Now the power of God can be overwhelming. And these people, unfortunately, instead of being overwhelmed and realizing who Jesus is and embracing him, they give him the stiff arm and they want him gone. And so, uh, again, Hendrickson in his commentary even says, that we could dare even say these people were greedy. They had seen enough carnage. They had seen enough destruction of worldly possessions, and they want Jesus gone. So instead of being overwhelmed that this man who lived, you know, this, this life was healed and rejoicing in that, they're worried about future loss. What if their pigs are killed? What if something happens to their house or their family, and, and they want Jesus out of there? So instead of realizing who he is, and that they have this great benefactor there and, and pr- trying to prevail upon him to heal them or bring you know, peace to their town or teach them about the truths of God. Instead of seeing all of that, they shut down and, and they don't want anything to do with God. And this is a good picture of who we are, that apart from God reaching into our dead hearts and breathing life into us, we do nothing but reject him.
And, and that's what these people are. But God will see, even in his mercy and in his grace, is going to leave somebody behind to tell the, the message of, of the truth. So um, verse 38, it shifts back to the man and to Jesus. And it says, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much God had done for him. And actually, if you read in Mark, it says he went around proclaiming to the whole region how much God had done for him, and everyone marveled. So everybody is seeing this amazing picture of of, um, this man's life completely changed and, and flipped around. And so this man has seen, he's the only one, he's seen who God is, the rest of the town is begging Jesus, please leave. He's begging, please let me go with you. And when our hearts see who Jesus is and we see his glory, we cannot help but be changed and beg and want to be with him because it's what we were created for. It's the reason we were made was to be in his family and to give him glory. And so the man is asking and begging, but God has other plans for his life. So the disciples did get to be with Jesus for a long period of time before they were left to plant the early church. But God's purposes and plans are not the same for every single person. This man got to see who Jesus was. He got to be healed. He got to have his life radically transformed. And now Jesus is leaving him as a mouthpiece for everyone in this area. And I think it it can be easy sometimes to think, um, to kind of let this gloss over on us. But I grew up in a small town. And in a small town, it feels like everybody you get this sense sometimes that everybody knows everybody else. And in my town, we had this guy that walked everywhere, and we called him the walker. I know it's really original. Um, I, I didn't say I grew up in Cambridge or Princeton. It was called Maybank. It's my hometown. So there's this guy who was a walker, and you would see him all the time walking on the side of the road, and he walked like this. So this kind of Jane Fonda power walk, because he was, this was his only way to get anywhere. So... Um, we called him the walker, and he had a long, like, ZZ top beard, and every time I saw this guy, he had on dark sweatpants, tennis shoes, and like a white t-shirt, like an undershirt, and, um, you know, there were all kinds of these rumors that swirled around about him. I mean, I heard he was from Canada. Uh, I heard he never, he couldn't learn how to drive a car. I, I heard people had tried to teach him how to ride a bike. He couldn't learn how to ride a bike. Um, I actually saw him up close one time because he had done some yard work for my mom. That's kind of what he did. He did odd jobs, and he would walk to the jobs and walk home. Um, he supposedly lived in this motel, uh, kind of run-down motel in, in my hometown. He didn't have a house. I don't know how much of this stuff was true because whirlers, rumors can kind of swirl around in a, in a small town. You can imagine, you know, the middle schoolers in our story were probably making up a lot of stories about this crazy tomb guy and, you know, how he had you know, done crazy things to other people. Um, so when you're in a small town like that and, and you kind of get cast in a mold, it can be really hard to break out of it. But I can tell you if this guy, the walker, had stopped walking around and started driving, my whole town would have been buzzing about it and how, you know, how did this happen? Everybody would have wanted to know the story. Now that I'm an adult and I look back, I don't know why no one picked him up and gave him a ride. But anyway... It's helpful for my story. So uh, this guy, the, the reason I bring that up is 
These people knew this guy was crazy and tormented and miserable. And so they knew Jesus couldn't have been some kind of charlatan that was there to trick them and take advantage of them. And so for this, to see this guy, again, they were amazed to see him sitting still with clothes on. So to now for him to have found religion and to be going around and telling other people about God and not trying to destroy himself or destroy somebody else, it had to blow their minds and flip the whole area on his head. And so we should be encouraged that regardless of what kind of terrible things are in our background, that God can somehow sovereignly weave this into his plan to bring glory to himself and to make it beautiful. I mean, this guy probably had been through more pain and torment than any of us have in our lives, and God has now used him to be an evangelist to this whole region. So I want to walk away with three Again, there were three lessons that I felt like God kept bringing to my heart from this story. And so the first one kind of dovetails with what we were just talking about is that God can reach anyone. So who in your life seems impossible for the gospel? Who in your life do you think, no way, they would never believe? What faces come to mind? I mean, I have a couple family members that I, I want to put them in the they will never believe category. I want to create that category and I want to put them in there because we've had conversations and it just feels incredibly impossible that they're going to let go of their disbelief and embrace who God is. But I was really admonished and rebuked over the last couple of weeks that no one is beyond the grasp of God and that no one is capable of seeing God for who he is and walking away from that and rejecting that. When we see God's glory and we see his beauty, we cannot help but be changed. So let you know, we should be encouraged and admonished to not create a they will never believe category and put people in there. On the other hand, we should be encouraged to pray and pray with faith and fervency that God can break into their hearts, that he can open their eyes, and that he can make them lovers of God and adopt him in, adopt them into his family. The second thing is that God's kingdom is the only one that matters. And I've been struggling a lot with this. Um, this story's always been hard for me because um, I, I want to question God. Why, why did God let this happen to the pigs? Did he want to cause harm to these herdsmen? Why did he destroy, let these 2,000 pigs be killed? Um, and, and he's been impressing upon me as we've been studying Luke uh, so often Jesus is redirecting people to his kingdom is the only one that matters. And we want to hold on to our kingdom. We want to cling to our kingdom. And this is the whole reason why the Pharisees missed who Jesus was. They're constantly questioning him about, you know, breaking rules or violating the Sabbath or eating with sinners and defiling himself. They are so holding on tightly to what they think is right that they cannot release and embrace Jesus for who he is, which is the Son of God who's there to redeem their lives. And I've been, I've been struggling and just kind of clinging to the bottom rung of the gospel of help me to release, release my kingdom to you. The plans, the desires, the things I want to see happen, the fear of financial ruin, all these things that, that, that I hold on to that are, that are just you know poverty in the sight of God's glory. Let me release those things to you. Um, and he's really been working that in my heart. And after the first service, um, a mom came up to me and said about this point that 
last, I think in the last week or two, her two-year-old pooped in the middle of the night. And so she went in, changed the diaper, cleaned him up, and then laid him back in his crib um, and went back to bed. And when she got back to her room, he was screaming and crying, I want my poop back. I want my poop back. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, right. Just as a two-year-old, you don't have any concept of things that are disgusting, <laughs> evidently. And, and But this is, is, it was such a picture to me, and she said it was to her, of how we are when we're clinging to our kingdom and we're holding on to what we think is best and we're trying to prevail upon God that, you know, it is poop. We need to let it go and embrace him. Yeah. So uh, anyway, <laughs> I know you're all edified by that. I'll try to bring it back. Uh, in Job, if you read the end of Job, or if you read Isaiah 40, you see these bold demonstrations of God saying, I, I, there is no one to give me counsel. I am the source of wisdom. I am the one who created the coastlines. I held the world in my hand. You see these just these emphatic pictures of how immense and how glorious God is, and how foolish that we would try to hold on to things and instruct him as to what we think is best. So God is wanting us to see here that his kingdom is best. And the townspeople missed it. They're worried about their loss, and they're worried about their stuff, and their security, and they reject Jesus. God is kind, and he leaves a messenger for them. And the last thing is we either serve God or we serve death. There's no alternative. Our lives are binary in this sense. Either we stay enslaved to sin, which is what we're born into, and that leads to death. We hold on to our kingdoms. We clutch them until we go into death and destruction, into the abyss, the place where Satan is kept. Or we serve God. We release those things, and we embrace him for who he is. When the people showed up, they were amazed to see this man sitting at the feet of Jesus. And in our postmodern times, we often like to think that religion will limit our freedom, serving God will limit the things that we can do, and that we should pursue freedom as, as the greatest ideal, the ultimate end. But in our best moments, maybe we feel some freedom, but in our low moments and in most other, other moments, we know that our hearts are full of anxiety, they're full of fear, and that so much in our lives depend upon things that are outside of us. And the only way to get true freedom is to come and submit our hand, ourselves under God's mighty hand and embrace what we were created to do, which is be a part of his family and give him glory forever. And so we all need Satan and sin crushed so that we are freed from its slavery and adopted into God's family. And we all need to be sitting in our right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this passage this morning. I thank you, Lord, that despite weak sinners, you are able to work your power. That though I am weak and sinful, that you love me. Though that all of us are weak and sinful, you love us. Though that we try to weave a life of destruction and death, that you come in and you rescue us. And you turn that into a beautiful mosaic for your glory. And I pray, Jesus, right now that our hearts would be encouraged by your sovereignty, by your beautiful work, and by your healing. I pray, Lord, that you will bring 
healing to us as a people, Lord. I pray that we will let go of our kingdoms, that we will embrace you. And I pray, Jesus, that we will see that as the only true path to freedom. Use this time right now, Lord, to to build up our hearts, to expand our vision of you. I thank you that we will spend eternity increasing in joy, not just eternity happy and peaceful. We will be, but that will be increasing because we will spend eternity finding out more about who you are and realizing more of what your glory is. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have our eyes fixed on heaven and not on earth. In your name, amen.